to Learning Now Radio, bringing you the best news, views and interviews from the team that brings you Learning Now TV. This is Learning Now Radio. On this episode of Learning Now Radio, I'm delighted to be speaking to Ken Murray. Uh, Ken is somebody that I met at DevLearn, I uh, think back in 2015, and we struck up a conversation straight away. He is, by his own admission, too many things. He's an e-learning design program manager for the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, which if that wasn't already enough, he's also administrative director of EACH, which is the e-learning alliance of Canadian hospitals. And I can guarantee, having read his blog post series that we're going to be discussing today, he's probably going to be an author one day. So Ken, thank you so much for joining us on Learning Now Radio. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, and uh, it's a pleasure for us because you are hitting on a topic that is really current. Um, we've just finished here in the UK, the Learning Technologies Conference and Exhibition. And one of the most popular sessions was the keynote, um, which discussed uh, the power of storytelling and the power of narrative and why that's so important to learning professionals and probably the survival of the learning profession, a really rich understanding of that. And Ken, you've really done your homework on this and gone one step further in looking at the brain science um, behind this and what really resonates with people and produced a fantastic uh, paper called Having Tea with a Crocodile. Tell me about it and why you wrote it. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm delighted to hear that it's such a hot topic. Uh, certainly the power of storytelling and narrative uh, in education is a hot topic over here as well. And I, I'd i like to tell you a little story. I was really struggling uh, going back to about 2012 with something. I, I work with hundreds of subject matter experts at the hospital, most of whom have extremely tight timelines. And if they have any budgets at all, they couldn't afford a, an order of fish and chips. So I was struggling within those constraints to find effective ways of not only engaging audiences, but uh, of having a meaningful and lasting impact on performance. Um, of course, gamification was all the rage, but seemed out of reach. Uh, so I started doing some research. And I, I actually have to give full credit to uh, a game theorist by the name of Tom Chatfield from your side of the pond. I don't know if you've heard uh, some of his TED Talks, but he was really the catalyst for this journey that I've been on. Um, and I'll come back to narrative in a moment, but what he and I are both in awe in was something uh, unique about the power of games to motivate and compel and transfix human beings unlike anything else. Uh, and what I uncovered, what many others have also uncovered, is that uh, narrative and storytelling are one of these key and fundamental game mechanics which do activate regions of the brain, such as uh, a VTA which creates dopamine, and it does have a high correlation with memory, with retention, with focus, uh, with learning, and even with confidence when applying a newly acquired skill or new knowledge uh, back on the job, for example. And it's a really interesting topic because I think the whole notion or definition of gamification itself is really interesting. 
Um, I've done a lot of work with a really great scriptwriter here in the UK, um, scriptwriter for e-learning called Daniel Whiston. And in fact, he's recently uh, published a blog for me um, on this topic, actually, narrative and storytelling, but talking about games and that sometimes they can be a little misconstrued or perhaps implemented a little bit crudely. So where we're looking for that transformation, we think, oh, we must gamify it. So let, let's put lots of animation, let's put lots of interactions, and we'll turn it into a game, and then that will draw people to it. And it's almost led by the... Um, the superficials of the game rather than, mm. as you've described, the fundamentals of what happens to a person when they are being motivated, what sort of things are motivating people to engage, to complete things, to come back to it, to uh, what sort of things are going to stick in memory. What have your, been your reflections in terms of, well, if we look at gamification, what's the shallow end, as it were, and what's mm. the stuff that really, really works? Well, well, that's just it. I mean, we hear game mechanics and gamification, and people immediately go to uh, serious games like fight, flight simulators, or uh, maybe they think of something like a Jeopardy game. Um, but what caught my attention was there's a whole continuum of uh, applications for simple and basic game mechanics. Um, so, I, and and not only not only that, but as we uh, dig down into how the brain um, works, there's some very interesting things going on. So what is it that compels people, for example, to spend billions of dollars on virtual goods, goods that only exist in fictional worlds? Why did a player spend 335,000 real world dollars on a piece of virtual property? $335,000. I mean, property is getting expensive in Canada, Ken, but that really is outrageous. It's why, well, yeah, I mean, in most parts of the world, you could buy an actual piece of property. Why in Farmville do 60 million players spend tens of millions of hours cultivating virtual crops, crops which have no value? Strawberries can't be eaten, grapes can't be turned to wine. Um, so, so, what is it, what's going on there that are motivating people not only to be engaged, but people are learning skills. They're mastering up, they're getting better, they're improving. Again, skills that have no real world value. And as we start to peel back uh, the onion, there are three things that caught my attention most. Number one, when we look at images of the brain of a person performing virtual tasks for virtual rewards, those images look almost identical to the brain of a person performing real tasks for real rewards. The second thing is uh, the, some of these basic game mechanics activate a region of the brain um, which produces dopamine. As I said, dopamine is correlated to learning memory, motivation, focus, and confidence. And then the last piece, and this is what got me, so you remember my, my uh, subject matter experts have no budgets and no time, that we can apply these basic mechanics, including narrative storytelling, um, to learning and business processes in such a subtle way that no one would ever consider they were playing a game. So if we talk about that full continuum of full-on gamification down to good old-fashioned text-based learning or instructor-led training, even a boring page-turner e-learning module can very easily and inexpensively be uh, be transformed. And that is really what 
what caught me. Uh, what can we do? What are the seven sort of things that we can do to motivate people and to engage people and to help them retain this information that uh, we're trying to feed them? And I think that's the thing that caught me actually when I was reading your paper, Ken, is that one of the other issues, I think, in terms of thinking about being able to discuss this internally with your stakeholders and that we like to use some of these mechanics or, you know, we, exactly as you've said, most organizations don't have the budget. But even if you were going to say, I'd like to pitch for that big budget for that, for that big game, it's probably not going to happen. And it may be um, questionable whether it will deliver value anyway, especially when you think about some of the games that you were just discussing there. Or if you think about some you know, really expensive high-end games like something like Call of Duty, you're never going to have the internal budget to do something like that. So it is about understanding the the game mechanics in a very practical way. I also think it's probably about credibility because I think depending on the audience you're talking to in a company, if you say, oh, well, okay, so this particular skill area we've got to address, we'll build a game. As many people as may be excited by that will also be switched off by that. That they don't, you know, they don't want a game. They've got important things that they've got to deliver. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, I, and I've got, you know, enough on my plate. I'm trying to develop my career here. I don't want a game. This is not what you're talking about at all, is it, Ken? This is about understanding the mechanics of why people are motivated to complete games and how we can transfer that into our learning design. So what are some of the key um, sort of practical steps that people could take to start to apply this to their learning? Well, and that's the great question. So uh, let's come back to narrative for a moment uh, because I, I'd heard about the power of narrative, but when I actually sat down to uh, create learning, I didn't really know where to start. I didn't know what to do. Um, you know, do I start writing a novel? It was a dark and stormy night. No, we don't have time for that. I, I stumbled upon a gentleman by the name of Oren Claff. He is uh, an investment banker. And he's interested in the brain and how it works insofar as it can make him money. Um, but what he discovered had huge implications for us as uh, learning and development professionals, um, especially as we talk about the use of narrative to engage people. So Oren, uh, he wasn't always so successful. He had uh, incredible deals for his investors, low risk, uh, high return, easy steps for the investors to take. But the problem was he wasn't able to teach or he wasn't connecting with the investors. They weren't learning what the risks were and they weren't learning what the benefits were. So he went out and met with some of the world's top uh, neuroendocrinologists and scientists to figure out how the brain worked. And what he uncovered was uh, what, what he calls the crocodile brain. Um, and that's where the title came, came from, um, or what we would call our amygdalae. Um, in fact, we have two of them. Um, and this plays a key role in how we communicate with our learners. So if you think of this crocodile brain, um, it's, the, it's sort of our gatekeeper. It's our filter to our brain. We are bombarded as human beings with a wealth of uh, stimuli all day long. Uh, we think of the cocktail party effect, for example. There are sounds, there are people talking, there's a texture of a carpet. Most of this information gets filtered out. If it were all to be sent to the higher cortical uh, centers of the brain, we'd have heads the size of Cadillacs, which is not very practical. So this crocodile is responsible for being the gatekeeper, the bouncer, if you will, to our higher 
levels of the brain. Um, if we can get the crocodile's attention, then that bouncer will say, hey, you can come in and uh, I'll send you up to the higher levels of the brain. And just very quickly, what happens is uh, if we can get the crocodile's attention, the amygdala will have a conversation with uh, something called the ventral tegmental area. And this is key because it's responsible for producing dopamine. Dopamine we think of as our chemical messenger. It's a, the post, postman, if you will, to take our information as educators, our knowledge, our skills, whatever the behavior is, and transforming it, taking it up for processing and long-term storage. So if we don't get the crocodile's attention, the crocodile will not have the conversation with the VTA. Our chemical messenger dopamine will not get created, and it will there, there will be nothing left to carry our information. I don't know if you've ever found yourself reading a book, for example. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll read a couple of paragraphs. I get to the end, and I think, what on earth did I just did I just read? I remember reading the words, but I I can't remember what the meaning was, um, and that's because it's been filtered out. Uh, regularly, although it's normally to do with the fact that I'm reading far too late at night after a glass of wine, but you make a fair point. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. Um, and so the key when we when we talk about narrative and storytelling for me is okay. Well, how so? How do I get the crocodile's attention? Um, and there are really there are sort of four key things. Well, is it dangerous? Is it going to attack me? Is it going to uh, elicit that uh, fight or flight response? Is it something that I can eat? Uh, is it a mating opportunity? Um, or does it pose some other benefit? Uh, there's another one. Uh, is it something very novel, really, really unusual that I need to, to look at to see if it meets one of those other criteria? Is it dangerous? Is it uh, a mating opportunity? Or is it something that can benefit me or that I can eat in some way? Uh, but if we don't do that at the very primitive level, if we don't engage our learners on the emotional level right at the get-go, everything that comes after it, just like when we were reading um, the paragraphs of the book, everything gets filtered out. So we need to engage right at the very beginning at a very primitive level. Very quickly, in Oren Claff's example, um, if he were presenting his investors with some, a benefit, say, uh, you will earn 7.5% return over 12 to 13 years. Well, that may be a benefit, but it requires higher levels of processing. So what he'd want to do is flip it and say, this will earn you $5 million. Well, that's got my attention. Now we can start to scaffold the learning as to how we get to that $5 million. And I think that's absolutely key that you've hit, hit on there is saying, okay, well, then how are we going to um, activate this crocodile brain? And you use the word emotion. It's making that emotional connection and I think what's particularly interesting about that is we talk so much and we have over particularly I think over the past couple of years has been a real attention to we've got to get to know our businesses we've got to get to know their their pain points their their pressures their delights we've got to know our learners better and I think to use the mechanisms you're talking about here it absolutely demands that we do because if we're going to um, engage them at an emotional level we do have to understand them Oh, absolutely. And I think as learning and development professionals, most of us 
know and understand that we need to engage our audiences and understand their needs and connect with them on the emotional level. But what struck me most about this research that I've uncovered over the last several years is there, there's actually a scientific reason behind it. That our, our learners aren't to blame. If we don't make that emotional connection with them, then their, their brains are physically incapable of recalling that information. Um, and that's what struck me because I can now have that conversation with people across the business and say, hey, you know what? There, this is the science behind it. It's not a nice to have that narrative. It's not a nice to have that emotional connection. It's a must have. And it's revolutionary, I think, for people on both sides of the, the coin here, because I think whether you work internally as part of an organization to talk about, well, these are the, you know, we're going to have to address the difficult subjects because they may be the ones that really connect with people on an emotional level. But I know that I've also been in a situation, came from the other side of the coin, where we've been asked to develop content and actually sort of, you know, discuss and pitch with a with a customer, you know, we're going to have to go to those areas that, you know, almost the unwritten rules of the organization or the things that we have to acknowledge that, do you know what, you're right, that's really tough. And we know that it's really difficult when you're with that customer or we know that this is really hard. Um, we're not going to sugarcoat it by saying the best way to sell to this person is X, Y, Z. It's actually, do you know what, it's really hard selling, if let's say if sales was the, was the conversation. Sure. We know what life feels like. And it feels like this, this, and this, doesn't it? And you get this type of response, don't you? Yeah, I do, actually. Somebody's actually finally acknowledging how tough this is. Right. Well, let's get this out on the table and let's explore it. And some people are quite reluctant, I think, to address those sorts of issues. But as you've said, if we don't do it, we're not going to make that connection. They're not going to remember. And just as you've said, and I love that, it's not the learner's fault. It's not. And that's what I love most about this is, um, you know, we're always, <laughs> there's no one to blame, but our brains. Um, so it's, as I said, it's no longer a nice to have, it's a must have if we want to have a lasting impact on learning and performance. So what are some of the things that you have done? Ken, can you share with us a couple of examples of, of, of things that you have done to apply this to some of your work? Yeah, absolutely. We are so accustomed to wanting to present our learners with just the facts, with bullet points, with here are the steps you need to take. Um, for example, a, a project management course we we developed a little while ago, um, my, many might consider a very boring topic. It was a two-day in-class session that we converted to online learning. And we turned it into online learning and it was okay, but we weren't connecting with people. So very subtly and very uh, quickly, we added a little bit of narrative to it. So we started the course with a, a one minute video saying, here's a scenario. There's a unit at the hospital. It's, there's a little bit of uh, chaos going on. You've got a budget of $125,000. How are you going to solve the problem? And instead of telling people, the steps to project management, we showed them. And we just inserted little bits of the story throughout the module and enabled people to practice their skills against this narrative uh, as they walked through it. We didn't need to get into complex branching, but we allowed people to make decisions and we gave them rapid feedback, which is another game mechanic that activates 
uh, dopamine. Uh, and and it, in the end, it turned out to be successful. So really just subtle changes sprinkled throughout the module. It's often a subtle change in language. So we use uh, personal pronouns when you do this rather than talking in generic terms. Uh, and giving a people an opportunity to engage with the content, be immersed in the content rather than uh, being more observers of. So with all this sort of considered, and I know that there's lots more, Ken, that you're going to share with people in the blog series that you're uh, going to be developing. What sorts of um, other topics are you going to be touching on throughout the series? Well, there are really, as I said, there are seven simple game mechanics that I like to subtly uh, insert into our learning. Um, narrative and emotion is, the, of course, the first piece. So once we've engaged people, then what can we do easily to keep those dopamine levels high, um, keep people focused, keep them, uh, enable them to retain the information? And there's some simple things. One, one key mechanic, which many people will be familiar with, are tracking progress. Um, and this is very simple to do. It can look very advanced or it can be as simple as a progress bar or uh, just telling me how many pages I have left. Even a table of contents, we were accustomed to seeing a plain old gray table of contents, but let's, uh, let's get a little bit um, more creative and add a little bit of color to a table of contents. I'm not talking about a, a double rainbow craziness here. Just, uh, just let me know where I am, where I'm going, and uh, allow me to track my progress. Uh, unusually, this actually has a huge effect on boosting dopamine. Uh, some of the other things I touch on are rewards, um, the element of chance and skill. I, I want to tell you one, one quick thing. This is that really caught my attention. There's a, a professor, his name is Robert Sapolsky out at Stanford. Um, he's a biologist and neuroendocrinologist, and he talks about a very interesting uh, study related to the habit loop, which many people will be familiar with. Um, in this study, monkeys were taught, uh, were given a cue, so a yellow light would come on. They were asked to perform a task of pressing a lever 10 times, and then they were given a food reward. Now, for decades, since about the 40s, I think, the hypothesis was that dopamine levels was associated, were associated with, uh, with reward and pleasure and happiness. So the hypothesis was dopamine would spike as soon as the monkey was given a reward. And more recent uh, brain imaging technology uncovered something very interesting. And that is that dopamine levels, in fact, spike when the cue comes on. They stay very high until the task, pressing the lever, has been completed and drop off before the reward. And now what was more interesting is when, when researchers blocked this dopamine from being released artificially, monkeys stopped performing the task altogether. So what does that mean? Well, that means that dopamine is capable of eliciting goal-directed behavior. Now, the last thing that I think is most remarkable and something that we can leverage as learning and development prof professionals is this. Scientists ran the experiment one more time. And what they did is instead of uh, giving out the reward 100% of the time, they gave out that food reward only 50% of the time. And what's more is they only gave it out at random intervals. In other words, the monkeys couldn't predict when they were, would receive this reward. Now, what happened was 
dopamine levels went through the roof. Um, and this was the monkey trying to say, oh my goodness, okay, so how can I replicate this? Did I, did I press the lever too quickly? Was there something different about my environment? Um, was it too early in the morning? Does it happen at a certain time of day? So dopamine is directly connected to learning. They are trying to absorb as much information as possible to try to figure out how they can replicate that food reward. So how does that connect back to us? Well, if we talk about the element of chance and applying skill, which is one of the key game mechanics that I talk about, we can build this very easily into uh, some of our learning, whether it's e-learning or instructor-led training. Um, it doesn't matter. For example, instead of asking people a simple quiz question, let's give them a little bank of points to begin with and allow them to bet. So at the end of a topic, for example, let's say, okay, you've learned this, uh, you've learned this topic about uh, sales techniques, for example, how well do you think you know it? Let's bet. And now you think what happens um, in Las Vegas when, when people are gambling, why are people so engaged and excited? This is the exact same thing that's going on. And we can subtly blend those same techniques that the Vegas casinos build in to actually help our learners. Um, and it's quite remarkable, the effect that it can have. Well, can I don't know what more you could have possibly said to be having people running, asking, when is this blog series going to come out <laughs> and when can I read it? Because I think everybody, you know, everyone's looking for the way that they can engage, the way they can motivate in a really meaningful, credible way. And you've done such a wonderful job, I think, of giving an overview of a very rich and, like you say, deeply researched and in some areas complex subject in a very, very accessible way. So, um, Ken, what's next with you for this work? Oh, my goodness. Well, I hope to share uh, not only these seven mechanics, but some practical examples. And I'm working frantically uh, because all of the subject matter experts I want, uh, I work with want more of this. So I'm working frantically to post something, um, hopefully in the month of March. What, I, what I'm afraid of doing is publishing something that's incomplete, so which is why I'm I'm holding back. I'm tempted to release bits and pieces of it, which I may end up doing if people bug me enough. But uh, hopefully, we'll see something um, useful in the next uh, in the next few weeks. Well, please keep us updated with that, Ken, because we'll share that with everybody. Because I know that everyone's going to be very keen to see that. And Ken, once again, thank you so much for sharing. Not only your thoughts on this, but obviously the results of a lot of very well-crafted and well-researched work. Um, and hopefully we'll get you back on again to talk about some of those examples that you've been creating over the next year or so. So, Ken, thank you so much for joining us on Learning Now Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Learning Now Radio. All the best news, reviews and interviews. Well, that's all we have for this episode. I hope you found some useful takeaways to jot down and use back at work. And please remember to share Learning Now Radio with your work colleagues, your Twitter followers, and of course, your Facebook friends. So once again, thank you so much for listening to Learning Now Radio. Please help us to spread the word by subscribing and rating us on iTunes. And Lisa and I look forward to you joining us in two weeks' time.